Welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Exploring alternative investment opportunities available to the everyday investor. Here's your host, Ben Lakoff. Hello and welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Today's interview is with Peter Bookvar. Peter is a very bright mind and a frequent guest on places like CNBC and Real Vision discussing his views on financial markets. Inflation, deflation, stagflation. We hear all of these terms all of the time, but which scenario is more likely and why? We keep saying that these are unprecedented times, but what can we learn from history on what is a more likely outcome that will happen? What will the inevitable shift to something like MMT mean for investments overall? There's a lot of information out there, but more importantly, what do these different scenarios mean for our investments and how to position ourselves accordingly? Before you listen, please don't forget to like or subscribe to the podcast or even better, leave a review. If you're watching this on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel and or give the video a thumbs up. This really helps more people find the podcast and keeps this thing going, so thank you. Without further ado, Peter Bookvar on all things inflation and what it means for your portfolio. Enjoy. Peter, excited to have you on today. Welcome. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate having me on. Yeah. You're frequent CNBC and a number of financial circles that a number of people play in. But for my listeners that don't know who you are, could, do you mind starting with a brief background? Sure. Background going to what I'm doing now and, and previous. Sure. Um, well, right on what I'm doing right now, I'm Chief Investment Officer of a Weekly Financial Group slash Advisory Group, which is a, a wealth management firm managing about $6 billion. I manage two and then also run the investment committee and help advisors here create their portfolios and, and, and where the best places to invest in those portfolios. I'm also a writer. I write for The Book Report, which is a macroeconomic slash market newsletter where I'm just commenting on, on things that are relevant to, to, to both on a daily basis. And prior to this, I was the chief market analyst for the Lindsay Group, run by Larry Lindsay, who was a Federal Reserve governor in the mid-90s and was George W. Bush's senior uh, economic advisor when uh, he was elected. Awesome. Well, I'm super excited to have you on today and talk about a lot of these things because yep, there's a lot going on, that's for sure. And I definitely want to get into a lot more macro and the financial markets, but I think it's helpful to first start on your views of stagflation. So maybe if we start there, what your views are, what the different drivers are, and then we'll, we'll go from there. So I would say right now we're in November for, la for, the, for this year, every, every, pretty much COVID, when I saw what was going on with these upended supply chains, and as the, the summer progressed and things started to reopen, started to see pockets of, of price spikes where there, there was the supply demand imbalance. We really started to see it at the supermarket as obviously because of, of, of the virus and the shutdowns, it got more difficult to procure items like meat, for example. And with everyone rushing to, to buy what they wanted to buy, you saw these price spikes. So it started to give sort of a um, heads up to me that we had to start watching out for these supply demand imbalances elsewhere. And I believe that as we now get further into the year, that belief is now being further entrenched. Now the stag part, I think could be alleviated by the vaccine and that 2021 could see a, a very good economic recovery. But on the other hand, the inflation side of that could be more enhanced than I initially thought. 
And when you, and I, and I like to break down the inflation into different parts because it's not a homogeneous thing. And for years we had services inflation driven by medical care costs, rent increases, tuition, insurance, so on, that ran about 3% year over year. What offset that was deflation or disinflation on the good side. That is, is natural, particularly in technology. I mean, the deflation is, for, for, for centuries, has been the trend. Typically, when you get inflation, there are more cyclical increases. That can be short-term or can last a couple of years, depending on what countries fiscal policy is, what their monetary policy is, and we're just short-term supply demand imbalances. So now we're in a situation where we're beginning to see a rise on the good side of inflation. And part of that is driven by actually transportation, which is services, because everything that gets produced in this world ends up on a ship, a truck, or an airplane, and those transportation costs are jumping double digits. You look at air, car uh, air cargo, well, a lot of passenger planes would take cargo as part of a flight. A passenger doesn't realize that. They're just going on a plane and they get their luggage down below, but there's also cargo. So you've taken, you've basically put a lot of planes in hangars because of COVID and you have this dearth of, of capacity, which has allowed FedEx and UPS, for example, to aggressively raise prices and announce surcharges on all their holiday shipping. Cargo on, on, on ships are up sharply and trucking is having a heyday here. So that is causing, and, and, and producers and manufacturers are trying to, to, to tack that on. And also their uh, supply chains have been disrupted. So it's costing uh, them more to, to get goods and produce and they're passing that on to the consumer. Now on the services side, we've seen a slight reduction in rents. Obviously in New York, San Francisco, even LA, uh, Chicago, they've seen a, a big reduction in rents, but in the suburbs, we're seeing uh, a continued persistent rise in rents, both multifamily, but also single family homes that landlords are renting out. They're seeing uh, rent increases of five to 7% as people move to the burrs, particularly millennials with, with, with families. So I think that the services side will remain consistent, two to 3%, and now you're getting a rise on the good side, and I think that's going to combine with surprises on the inflation stats. And, and one more thing to add, we've seen a rise in commodity prices. Food prices have jumped sharply here. Soybean prices in particular at multi-year highs. We've seen a rise in the industrial metals. Aluminum today was traded at the highest level since March 2019. We've seen a rise in copper. We've seen obviously an increase in gold and silver this year. Natural gas prices are back above three. It's really been crude oil that's been the only commodity that has not participated here. But because of the, the sharp decline in, in supply, I think that when you get into 2021 with, with, with the vaccines, that you're going to see uh, a sharp increase in demand that's going to lead to higher oil prices. Then you'll throw in all that fiscal spending, which has elevated the demand side to a much greater extent than otherwise in a recession, particularly with the money that has been put into consumer pockets that more than offset the lost wages and income. And then obviously the Fed monetizing that. So to me, this is just a, 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 a big mix of inflationary factors that will really begin to, to show its head in 2021. There's so many moving gigantic factors here. It, it just makes my mind spin constantly, especially you factor in 
wealth inequality and all of these the things, it gets overwhelming, definitely. Just to touch on the, you said the stag might go away. The idea is that the vaccine allows the world to go back to normal and transportation and supply chains are back where they should be so that the goods inflation is less than you were thinking when all of these disruptions were happening? No, it'll actually be more because the demand side is going to rush back faster than the supply side of the economy is going to be able to meet. Gotcha. So you can see even more price pressures uh, okay. with this rush of demand. I mean, take airlines, for example. I mean, I'm already today read statistics that summer travel reservations have jumped sharply this, this week. Oh my gosh. Because people see the Pfizer news and they're already booking their summer vacations because they're realizing, wow, it may be safe. Well, these airlines are not going to have thousands of pilots and flight attendants rushing back. They're going to probably take their time to see how this plays out in terms of bringing back capacity. So they're going to have pricing power this summer. Hotels are going to have pricing power this summer. So that gets to this, this inflationary situation. So higher potential inflation, maybe better growth. Now, the question, though, is, is that if you do get this higher inflation, because we're a consumer-dependent economy, that in itself can then eventually slow growth. Right. Exactly. So it, it is a mix. And, and, and the, the key question is, is obviously how the Fed is going to respond if we start to see three-tenths, four-tenths monthly CPI PCE numbers, that uh, they're going to be in, in quite a quandary. Yeah. And then CPI has its own issues, right? Uh, obviously, as you've talked about it before, but this blanket inv inflation rate, but as soon as you peel back the curtain and start looking at it, I mean, there's massive inflation in certain aspects and massive offset by massive deflation. Yeah. That's, they'll be very interesting. So stagflation happened in the 1970s. I mean, as, how do you see this playing out? Assuming that the, the vaccine works, we'll still have stagflation just until these supply chains are kind of repaired and back to where they were. How do you, how do you see this playing? Yeah, it'll, it'll take time for the economy to sort of readjust, particularly the supply side to, to, to readjust to all the changes that have gone on this year. And, and even there were changes going into this with, with the tariff war that we've had where a lot of companies were, diversifying their supply chains and moving things out of China, for example, into, into Vietnam or, or to other Asian countries. And that takes time to, to make that shift. And while eventually maybe the, that will create a, a cheaper supply base and a more diversified one, it doesn't necessarily lead to a more productive one because China, for all its faults, was a, a very productive source of manufacturing from an infrastructure standpoint, from an employee reliance standpoint, and so I, now the, the demand side, it's, it's, it's we're not going to be snapping our fingers. Everything's going to rush. It's going to be, you know, an evolution as, as the months in 2021 progress. And as more people get the vaccine and more people get confident, I, I think a good case right now to, to watch is China. China has, and, and not just China, but South Korea and Singapore and Japan and, and Taiwan have been very good, of course, at containing the virus and limiting its spread, which in turn has allowed them to reopen their economies to a much greater extent. And movie theaters are packed again in China, restaurants are packed again, malls are packed again, travel while not back to where it was pre-COVID is, is about 60 to 70% back to the levels where it was. And, and, and I think that that's going to be a good example of what we have to look forward to. And, and I do think, and you, you talk about this whole work from home thing, I, I think that, that people are, are tired of working from home. 
and that maybe they'll work from home one day a week if they can, but there's a desire to go back to the office and, and intermingle with people and uh, get into their car and drive to work. And then it, it gets tiring and you lose, and I think we're losing productivity. By, by, by working from home. I know kids are having a difficult time learning oh from gosh. home. Yeah. Uh, they need to get back to school. So I, I think that, and people want to get back to restaurants and you can be sure that that summer concert season is going to be raging. Everyone's going to want to get back and everyone's going to want to go to a, a baseball game again. And everyone's going to want to go on vacation. Now, will that one day business trip where you fly to Chicago at 8 a.m. and you're back on the 6 p.m. back home because you want to see a client for an hour? Well, maybe that takes place on Zoom, right. but I think a lot of behavior, I think people will be surprised, will go, will go back to a lot of where it was. Now, if you're the Fed, you, you, the, what, what a central banker should do is they should go where the puck is, as, as Wayne Gretzky said. But we had a lot of Fed speakers yesterday post the Pfizer news, and they were still so narrowly focused on the next two quarters. And that we all admit, yeah, we, we have a, a, a rough winter to get through in terms of the spread and what it means for economic growth. But there's a major light at the end of the tunnel here. And there was no Fed member that even talked about what that world is going to look like and how they're going to be forced to adjust policy. Mm -hmm. So it tells me that they're just going to be so late in, in, in reversing what they've done, which means that the longer end of the yield curve is going to end up tightening for them. A few things there. One, you, you had mentioned that you're looking at China, Korea, all of these other countries that have kind of slowly went back to normal, but they're doing this without a vaccine, right? It, it seems very odd that we are just kind of holding our breath uh, for this Hail Mary vaccine, one that's never been created for this sort of virus to come, and then we can start easing back into a sense of normalcy. But how, how are these other countries doing it so much better than we are? Well, they had practice back in 2003 when SARS hit in Hong Kong. So they learned a, a lesson uh, of the importance of wearing a mask and, and what it means to, to limit the spread and what it means to physically distance. So going into this, they knew. I mean, Hong Kong in January, before we even cared about it until late February, Hong Kong heard about a, a, a virus in China, They're, they were already reacting to it. So I think they, they see wearing a mask as just putting on their, their, their shirt and, and, and pants on a daily basis. It's just part of their wardrobe. So I, I think that that was the, the, the missing link here in the US and, and, and amazingly, we still, at least parts of the country, oh, yeah. haven't really learned their lessons of the importance of wearing a mask. And while it's not foolproof, it dramatically lowers the odds of spread, not just if one person wears, but certainly if, if, if a second person wears it. Right. You know, I guess the only benefit of, of seeing a, a sharp increase in, in, in virus spread is that people look around and say, okay, I, I need to start putting that mask back on and being a lot more careful. Yeah, that makes sense. Transitioning a bit, gold is up 27% this year, year to date. It was a massive rally that started, you know, mid 2018. It's gone up a lot. Where do you see it going from here and why? I, I see it going much higher. I think in, in order to discuss gold, I think it's good to have a perspective and that the, the bull market really started in 2000 after a 20 year bear. 
and we went up 12 years in a row, we went from 250 to 1900. And then starting in really 2013, gold really broke down, which was ironic because it was just as the Fed was doing QE infinity, but there was just this faith in the Fed that we didn't need to own gold because the Fed was gonna make everything just fine. And then we bottomed in December, 2015, ironically, just as we saw the end of negative, I'm sorry, the end of seven years of zero interest rates was just when the Fed uh, was just about to begin raising interest rates. So we've almost doubled from that December 2015 low of 1050. This year, as you mentioned, it's been a good year. And I like to really just very simply look at gold and its influence on two factors, real rates and the direction of fiat currencies, and particularly, of course, the dollar, since it's mostly denominated in the dollar. I don't look at gold as, as, as a, the world is, is, is falling apart hedge or uh, a geopolitical hedge or, you know, I need to get into my bunker with my, my macaroni and cheese, my gun and my gold bars. Uh, I look at gold as really just a currency and there are times to own it, there are times not to own it. And with what central banks have done, it's, and, and particularly this year, how they've so much further elevated the rate of QE and, and of course the Fed lowering interest rates back to zero and the Fed going, I'm sorry, the ECB going deeper with negative interest rates and, and what the Bank of England has done in, in, in putting up more QE and in the Reserve Bank of Australia that has even drank this, 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 this awful Kool-Aid, I, I, I say, even though they, they think it tastes good, of almost zero rates and QE and thinking that this is some sort of vaccine or cure and I don't see how gold and, and with that in sympathy silver don't go much higher from here, particularly if I'm right on inflation, because if I'm right on inflation, then you're gonna see another drop in real rates. If you get that inflation, you're gonna see you know, higher inflation is currency negative. You also have these exploding debts and deficits in the US, and you can draw a chart of the past 30 years plus and overlay the US dollar versus the US budget deficit as a percent of GDP, and they pretty much follow each other. And now obviously because of the recession, that that ratio is 15%. So you have the, the, the secular tail, not tailwinds, headwinds for the dollar, notwithstanding some, some bursts of increases, but the dollar is going much lower in the next couple of years. So between that and this higher inflation, to me is, is a great setup to get gold and silver prices much higher. I mean, silver is, is basically half of what it was in 2011. It's half of what it was in 1980. Gold is just back to where it was nine years ago. And again, in this crazy monetary world where the other day you hit a record high of uh, dollar or the, the dollar amount of negative yielding securities around the world being around 17 trillion. You can't, you can't make this stuff up. And when you look at 2011, you look at the fundamentals in 2011 when silver got to 50 in this parabolic move and gold was 1900, no one really heard of negative interest rates in 2011. QE was sort of in its infancy. I don't even think the ECB had started QE. It was really just the Fed, the Bank of England uh, was doing it, obviously the Bank of Japan. But look at central bank balance sheets back in 2011 and no negative interest rates. And that's where gold and silver were nine years ago. And then you compare it to today where you have obviously the, the craziness with with QE and, and negative and zero rates and silver's 50% below and gold is just back to where it was then. So the fundamental setup to me is still 
pretty impressive that uh, I think is yet to be fully realized in the upside. Yeah, but now, I mean, it's QE infinity. It's going to be very difficult to turn it off or do any sort of tightening or anything sure. at this point. All roads basically lead to some sort of MMT situation where, you know, we just have UBI and money's deposited every month and this money is... Well, we already essentially have that. But, but way more uh, so than it is now, you know, we stop calling it a national debt and this is just dollar creation event and that's how dollars are into the economy and it's like a rewiring of everybody's brains. The way you see it going and does gold still outperform in this sort of scenario as well? Well, if you do have further, no, we already had MMT this year. I mean, in the U.S., we, we gave everyone checks. We had the, the added unemployment benefits. Japan, they gave people checks. So we're already having a form of it that the Fed is monetizing. What can hinder that is if we continue this or we're up the pace, well, then that inflation story really gets enhanced next year, which then becomes sort of kryptonite to that MMT. Because once you get higher inflation, you limit when you get higher rates in response, even though we can't handle higher rates, well, then that limits this whole MMT experience because Stephanie Kelton, who's a big proponent of MMT, she acknowledges that it's once you get higher inflation, well, then that screws up the MMT. And she thinks you can raise taxes to then lower inflation, but then that just deepens the economic problems. So I, I, I you know, first of all, MMT relies on the, the effectiveness of government spending, and, and, and that's almost an oxymoron, but it, it would be higher inflation that would be sort of the inherent roadblocks or, or bumps in the road to MMT uh, at a greater extent than it is right now. But uh, I mean, talk about headwinds. If the banks and MMT proponents and effectively the government and the Fed are just going to try to limit inflation with everything they can, because that's what makes MMT unwind, that, that's a pretty big headwind as inflation as a key value to making gold go up and be bullish on it, right? Well, it, it, it's, you know, th that, that possibility of, of greater MMT, yeah, it, it's, it, it would be very dollar negative. And that would be obviously then, then, then gold positive. But you know, the irony is with, with this inflation stuff is that you know, the Fed par paradoxically wants higher inflation. Every central bank wants higher inflation, even though it's that higher inflation that ends up killing the bond market, which then leads to higher interest rates. I mean, the, 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 bond, the bond bubble is the greatest bubble in the, or the biggest bubble in the history of financial markets. And negative yielding bonds is, is the epitome of a bubble because the only way you make money from holding that, because it's no longer an asset, it's a liability because it's costing you money to hold. Right. Is to hope dump that they keep going down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, dump it off to a greater fool. So it's the epitome of a bubble. Now, central banks have been able to keep this going. Certainly the Bank of Japan has been hugely successful in being able to keep it going. However, if they are eventually successful in generating higher inflation, which I think in 2021 they will, well, then it just blows all of this up. So the last thing that central banks should be rooting for in a sense, is the FMT and higher inflation because kind of then ironic, that, isn't that it? just ruins everything. I mean, you know, the, the capitalism has an amazing ability to regenerate itself because just as we get out of bed, human nature is to regenerate and business just regenerates. So if just left to its own devices, you know, an expansion follows a recession and we don't need all this central bank 
and government spending because we will eventually, I mean, the vaccine is the greatest stimulus plan you can potentially have. Far exceeds any government spending and far exceeds any monetary policy. And, and, and Pfizer was the first step in, in, in getting that stimulus that will then really show itself next year. Yeah, hopefully. Who knows, right? We're talking about bonds just being the greatest bubble ever. I mean, most of financial portfolio theory is predicated on the 60-40 portfolio. This is part of the reason why gold is so under-owned by a number of bigger institutions and pensions and things like that. What does this mean, bigger picture, for these already underwater pensions and people that allocate a lot of their, their capital to bonds? It's a great question. It's something that working at a wealth management firm, we, 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 we juggle all the time. And, and because we have the standard 60, 40, 70, 30 type portfolios. And what, what I tell the advisors here and, and how we're trying to position in this, this new environment is that the, the fixed income part of that portfolio really needs to be looked at as a capital preservation part of the portfolio rather than an income producer rather than a, uh, a form of, 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 of capital gains if you have a, a bear market in stocks or a bumpy time in stocks. So it's, it's, it's a different port in the storm this time around, where you, know, you look at, at the bear market in stocks and in, in late 07, 08 into early 09, that, that sharp drop in interest rates generated by the Fed that led to uh, great performance in fixed income, you know, outside of like high yield that obviously got, got hurt, but treasuries for sure, that, that those capital gains were able to mitigate the decline in, in equities. This time around, there's very little room for those capital gains. And really, instead, you're just clipping coupons. And that, if are, that are negative reason, at times. <laughs> right. And if the reason is for a decline in equities is because of a rise in longer-term interest rates, well, then you have the potential of losing money in both bonds and stocks. So I think, again, that people should be looking at the fixed income as, as being preserving capital rather than really growing it. And if you're an advisor, you got to be really careful because you don't want to call your clients and say, yeah, we lost money in both stocks and bonds. Right. Defeats the purpose. Right. That's where you got to, you know, you got to be more sensitive to duration in your fixed income portfolio. And you have to really uh, seed uh, income for, for safety, because if you're going to buy long duration bonds right now, you're going to have to really be cognizant of the risks. I mean, you look at TLT, the, the 20 plus year treasury ETF. Well, from, from, from high to low on, on this recent correction, you know, you lost more than, than 10 to 15, I have to get the numbers, up to 15% of a decline. That, that's seven years of, of interest income on that decline. So you got to be careful. But you, listen, you're going to own T-bills, you're not going to make any money, but at least you're not going to lose anything. And so I, I think there's a whole new conversation that, that needs to take place here. The big storm brewing that I always see with that is you know, these pensions that are already underwater projecting seven, eight percent per year. And if they're 60, 70 percent in equities, and then they have this 30 percent, you know, bellwether that they just sit in cash that's effectively earning zero, like they're, they're definitely not going to hit that number. And with the, the changing demographics of the world, I mean, it's talk about a 
big nasty storm brewing and those sorts of storms can can wreck all financial markets i mean mean, massive bailouts is basically the only answer to something like that right right and that's from from a from a portfolio standpoint even though i am positioning myself and my portfolios and clients here for that potential inflationary environment in a way you hope you hope that i'm wrong because that would that would then upend a lot of different things so I hope I'm wrong on this inflation call and then I would have to just readjust portfolios because there, there is a, a bumpy road ahead if you do get a higher inflation, higher long-term rates. Now, it's interesting because throughout 2020, people saw the economy collapse with the shutdowns. Obviously, it was self-induced, but then they saw the stock market go up a lot. Why is the stock market doing well if the economy is not? Now, of course, it was bifurcated. It was really two different stock markets. It was tech that was rallying and everything else was selling off. But when people look at the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ, why is it doing well in the face of of a tough economy? Well, the irony is is that 2021, we can have an improving economy, but a more bifurcated stock market as well. Again, because of higher rates and because of higher inflation, how that can negatively affect the high growth, the high PE stocks from a uh, perspective of valuation rethink, but then help other areas in the market like oil stocks, which have gotten massacred, or bank stocks, or other value and beaten up names. All the, all the non-tech big six, basically. Right. Yeah. And maybe they have their day next year. Yeah. But, you know, this is also a byproduct of passive funds and dumb money floating into these and these, that, it, there's, there's a lot of factors. I'm, I'm curious, and this is obviously very, very difficult, but what key factors or things are you monitoring and watching that if, if these start to move the other way, will kind of make you change your mind about inflation and, and, you know, okay, we need to take a deeper look and, and start thinking maybe this, this, this was incorrect. What are you watching here? So I, I, I do listen to, because I own a lot of individual stocks, I do listen to a lot of conference calls, quarterly conference calls, because I want to hear what companies are saying. I want to hear what they are saying about uh, their supply chains. I want to hear what they are saying about their, their shipping costs or, or their food costs or whatever. I want to hear what they're saying about their labor costs. You know, you listen to anything related to home building and, and labor costs have gone up. Obviously, you look at the restaurant business, well, their labor costs aren't going up. So it's, it's a mixed bag with respect to that. I think the economic data through this winter, it's, it'll, it'll be challenged, but I think it's going to be given a free pass because it's all pre-vaccine. Well, now we have the, the we, have a, we can actually look over the hill and see a post-vaccine world because Pfizer was able to give it to us. And hopefully that will be followed by Moderna and AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson and that, that we can now see a post-vaccine, post-COVID world where whatever difficult winter we are gonna go through will be overlooked, which means that if I'm still seeing inflationary pressures through a challenged economy, well, that tells me that this is only going to intensify when this economy starts to really bounce back. And that is what I'm going to be watching. Now, if these supply chains sort of get right-sized and and everyone is all ready for this big pickup in demand and that the supply side will be able to absorb a rush of demand, well, maybe maybe the, the, the inflation stuff that, that I'm looking for may not come to pass. Now, one of the other key things on the inflation chart is, is what a labor cost is going to do. 
you can be sure that a lot of these businesses are going to be rushing to hire people back because if they're going to, there's a big pickup in demand. Well, if you're a restaurant, you got to get people back and you're, you know, the airline, you got to get people back. And there is the potential that you're going to have to pay higher wages to get people to come back, particularly on the, on, you know, for those that, that have the needed, the skills that you need. So you can see labor having, having leverage next year and says, yeah, you need me. You want me to come back. Well, you're going to have to pay me this. And yeah, I'll come back, but it's going to have to be at this wage. So you get higher labor costs. Well, then that's just going to further add to this inflation theme because then companies are going to try to pass that on to the consumer and pass it on to, to us. So there are a lot of different things that are telling me that now what can, what I can be wrong on is if the economy doesn't rebound swiftly in 2021, if it takes a while uh, to, to get people inoculated and, may, and maybe the vaccine is not as effective and, and that maybe there's this real change of behavior and that consumers after going th through a very traumatic 2020 says, you know what, I need to save more money. I'm not going out for dinner two or three nights a week. I'm still going to stick to maybe one or two times and I'm just going to cook more. And I want to save for a rainy day because going into this recession, I was not saving for a rainy day. Maybe companies that extended themselves with stock buybacks and, and, and were not focused on their balance sheet. Maybe they become more focused on their balance sheet and sort of rein it in. So you don't get that recovery. That, that's where maybe I can be wrong. And, and, and maybe we won't get that inflationary story next year. So, but to answer your original question, those are the things that I'm looking at yeah. uh, as, as, as we go into next year. There's so many factors. So I knew it was a virtually impossible question, <laughs> but very well said. I, I do think that the wage inflation thing is just a blip on the radar of this declining wages overall, a macro trend. I mean, this is the thing that people don't understand with remote work is now, if I need a marketing manager, or an accountant or anything, I mean, it's much cheaper to hire somebody in, a, in another country that is willing to do the job. Very similar for, you know, a fraction of the wages. And it just, it just becomes that much easier. And that comp like compiled with automation, it, it's just, UBI will be here before you know it. <laughs> Well, well, to your point that, that you're absolutely right in certain areas, there will be, there's plenty of supply of labor. We have to keep in mind though, that for certain things, for certain jobs, it takes a certain level of skill that is not always so easy to find. Also on the, you know, on the, on the lower wage front, I mean, look, we've, we've seen a big pickup in, in a lot of different states with minimum wage. Well, that raises the, the cost of labor. So there, there are going to be, I mean, in home building, you can't do that remotely. You need bodies. You need bodies to hammer that nail into, in, into, into, the, into the, the, the lumber. And it, it's not as easy to find that. You need to drive a truck from point A to point B. Well, you need bodies. And, and those bodies have not been so easy to find. So there, it, it's, it's not going to be wage inflation across the board. Because as you say, there'll be parts where you can outsource and some things will get automated and you can, you can sort of tap the global labor force to do what you need to do here but there are going to be other spots that that it's going to be tough where labor is going to have some leverage a couple of years ago so when you look at that profit pie the 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 percentage allocated to labor was the lowest since world war ii and that corporate profits and profit margins were very elevated because they were being stingy to labor 
But over the last couple of years pre-COVID, labor started to get a bigger piece of that pie. They started to get leverage as the unemployment rate came down. And that when the unemployment rate is three and a half percent, it's not so easy to go find bodies. It's not so easy to go find people if you want to expand your business, particularly finding those people that meet the, that have the skills that meet your requirements. It's just not easy. Again, just because just not in, there's not as many bodies out there. And yeah, you can go find somebody overseas to, to, to code for you, for example, but there are a lot of businesses that, that, that need the warm bodies here. And so now you hope that any cyclical increase in that, those wages, which will be good for the employees, but as you bring more people off the sidelines and you lower that unemployment rate, you'll be able to, 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 to keep those wage increases from going up too much. But you know, it's a process. It, 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 it's something that you could get a spurt of inflation because I don't think the inflation I'm arguing is, is a forever thing. It's, right, it right. could last six, 12, maybe even 24 months, but then the economies adjust, supply, demand, equilibrium gets back in balance and, and whatever price spikes you see sort of get back in line again. Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I just super, super long term. I mean, trucks are going to be autonomous. Like the home builders will be a uh, 3D mold or something. But autonomous though, even with cars too, there's still going to be a person behind the wheel. At first. And, 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 you know, going from New York to California on our highway system and roads to not have a person in that truck, I don't see that situation for a while. And so to me, autonomous is, is I, I think, is not mean, meaning that that truck is going to drive itself. I think that self-driving really for now and for the next 10 years is going to be a, a car that, yeah, it can help parallel park for you and you don't have to touch the wheel or you can for a minute look down and, and, and not pay attention. But I still think you're going to need warm bodies for even that situation and that the i mean imagine in new york city you're not going to be able to have car driverless cars because every, because of uh, every time a jaywalker crosses the street you know that, that car is going to have to stop personally so, i would feel much safer if every car was autonomous talking to each other and figuring this out we, we will eventually get there but i don't see right. that happening in the next 10 years maybe Fair. in 20 years just because it's so, it's so logistically difficult to, to, to coordinate, I think right now the great technology of, 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 of what we're seeing is just making that car and truck safer. Mm. Whether it's the light that goes off on your side of your mirror when somebody's getting close to you or, or, or just making of a break the travel assist, These little things, yeah. Right, is where the technology is. I think the, 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 the driverless story is, is way down the road. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice. Okay. Next, a, a, a quote from Stanley Druckenmiller. So he said, if the gold bet works, the Bitcoin bet will probably work better because it's thinner and more liquid and has a lot more beta to it. I, I do agree that Bitcoin is a bit of a more higher beta gold play. I wanted to start perhaps with Bitcoin, but also touch on silver and miners as perhaps another higher beta way to play this inflation gold play. So with, with, with respect to Bitcoin, sort of a hard money advocate, I completely understand the bull case on Bitcoin without question. 
the limited nature of it, 21 million coins, the, the creation of it because it didn't want to have to rely on fiat currencies and, and have something that just can be printed ad infinitum. So I, I, I get the whole bull case uh, for Bitcoin. I, I prefer gold and silver just because of the multi-thousand year history of them. And I feel like I can better price it relative to central bank uh, reserves and, 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 and so on. So I don't know what Bitcoin would eventually be worth. I know that there is growing institutional demand and I am sure Bitcoin goes much higher, but whether it goes to 20,000 again, 200,000, 2 million, I have no idea. And for all I know, it goes to 20 bucks if somebody creates another coin or if something gets hacked or, 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 you know, that's, or, 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 or if the internet goes down and then people can't access their Bitcoins or, or, or whatever, I don't know. Uh, I do think that there's probably a place for it in, in some people's portfolios that have the risk appetite, but also acknowledge the risks. And because of, of what I foresee for gold and silver, I am sure Bitcoin will, will be going along right with them. I, I just, I, I, I see the digital currency thing while Bitcoin itself is limited in, in its nature, for all I know, somebody is inventing another coin of some sort that will be limited in its nature that catches fire and, and becomes the next thing. Bitcoin, I think, is, is, has become well-established. I'm, I'm sure it has that, that, that sort of endurance in, in, this, in this world right now, in this crypto world, for sure. But what it's going to be worth in, in five to 10 years but listen, I don't know where gold and silver would be worth in five to 10 years. If we knew uh, where all these things would be in well, 10 years, we'd be, we'd be very... I, I just think that, that, that just as I said earlier, that there's a time and place to own gold and silver, and there will be a time and place not to own them. That'll probably be the, 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 the thing with Bitcoin as well. Okay. I just and don't now, know when and what price. No, that's fair. And how do you think of portfolio construction with gold and silver as the same basket, as you know, as an accelerant in these times that you should be holding gold, you should always have a little bit of gold and during these other times, perhaps a little bit more and add silver. How do you think about this with, in regards to portfolios? I, I think in terms of actual physical gold, I think someone, people and silver, people should always have some, whether they store it in a safety deposit, safety deposit box or, or in a safe at home. I think from a trading aspect or having it in your, portfolio, right now is the time to own it. And whether that allocation is 5%, 10%, even 15% or more, my, that my allocation for clients really starts out at 12, but those that have been in it and have appreciated that that allocation is is, is north of 15 to, to, to 17%. I'm comfortable with that, but it, it depends on, on how one as an individual feels. I, I tell people that I look forward to the day when I sell my gold and silver. Because I know that they'll maybe at the time there's probably maybe some sanity in the world, monetary world, but I expect to selling it when I make, do make that decision, it will be at higher prices and hopefully uh, I can redeploy that capital into other attractive value oriented type investments. God hopes that one day there's a value, value play that makes sense, right? Yeah, I mean, right now, for me, gold and silver is that value play. Well, yeah. But so, so are other uh, commodities. So are, are oil and gas stocks, to me, are, are tremendous value plays. And so I think that they're, they're, they, they exist out there outside of, of technology, because like I said, we have two stock markets, technology and everything else. Right. 
Right. And most, most commodities, I mean, do you feel the same way about copper and a number of the other commodities? Yeah. I mean, I think copper in particular, we've seen this year. I mean, look, we're, we're in a global recession and, and, and copper's near multi-year highs. It tells you a lot about the supply side where there's been a dearth of investments over the last couple of years. And even with the decline in demand, that has not been enough to offset the, 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 the drop in, in supply that's been able to maintain prices. Now you get an economic rebound next year, copper prices could go much higher. And copper is actually very interesting from uh, a usage standpoint is that through solar, through electric vehicle batteries, the electric vehicle battery will use four to five times more copper than the internal combustion engine. So just by going more electric vehicle, there's gonna be just a massive demand for copper. And actually silver also goes into those batteries as well. So copper is sort of a new age commodity and raw material that is playing the whole renewable theme that I find very interesting and, and, and silver as well. So that is, is gonna be really interesting looking at over the next couple of years. And that copper is not just gonna be uh, a raw material that goes into China building apartments that no one's gonna live in that there is going to be a lot of demand for it from the, the electric grid and, and, and renewable energy side. Interesting. And then for the average investor to take, take part in this copper bull run, a potential bull run, I mean, Freeport McMoran, like how, what's the easiest, most liquid way for most investors to play it? I happen to own for clients Southern Copper. Freeport, yeah, is, is a great play, but I happen to like Southern Copper. But yeah, that, that would be two ways of, of, of playing that, the copper theme, no question. Okay, that makes sense. And uh, we didn't touch on gold miners. If you're bullish on gold, this is kind of a higher beta play. Their operating margins get, get fatter by the, the higher gold price. How do you see those fitting into a portfolio? So the, the, for, for the well-run gold miners, they're all-in sustainable costs are about $900 to $1,000 an ounce and they're selling gold at 1900. I mean, th these are big, fat profit margins and they are gushing cash. That was reflected in the earnings we saw over the last couple of weeks from Barrick and Newmont and Agnico to name some of the larger ones, raising their dividends and dramatically paying down debt. And I think that they'll be able to sustain those level of costs. So each incremental rise in, in the price of, of gold- Just go straight to the, the bottom line. Of silver, these companies are seeing probably outside of, of, of some big cap software stocks, some of the fastest earnings growth rates out there. And I think that they're still well undervalued. You look at GDX, the, the ETF, last time in 2011 when gold was 1900, silver was spiking to 50, GDX was $60. Now it's less than 40. So I still think that there's tremendous opportunity in, in, in the miners because this is their time. This is their time. They got religion in terms of their, their businesses and, and cash flow and debt management. I mean, mining's a crappy business. And, but now that they, they, they've uh, done a much better job, at least many of the companies, of, of managing their business after being more reckless in the, in, uh, in the last bull market. And now they're going to be reaping the benefits of higher end product prices. Nice. And Anything else within the materials commodities world that you, gets you really interested? So I think ag is very interesting. I mentioned earlier that you have a sharp rises in food prices with soybeans at multi-year highs, corn back above $4. 
And I think the fertilizer stocks, which have been just maddening to own, maddening, are finally going to have their day as a play on higher soybean, corn, and, and wheat prices. Uh, uranium to me is interesting. Uranium, talk about maddening. It's quite a, quite a value trap that's been for the last five years. But uh, I think that you're seeing a, a major supply, supply demand imbalance that's building in uranium. And you want to talk about clean energy. Nuclear is the cleanest baseload power there is. Uh, so you want to talk about having wind, solar. Well, when obviously it doesn't, the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, you're going to need baseload power. And nuclear is the cleanest thing out there. Uh, so you're seeing very large increases in nuclear reactor production in, in China and in India, other parts of Asia, also in the Middle East and Russia that there's just not enough uranium over the next five to 10 years that's being produced for that demand. And while the U.S. has obviously completely capped its, its nuclear rollout and actually closing some, and Germany has obviously, I think, mistakenly walked away from, from nuclear because of Fukushima, but nuclear is clean and, and, and it's more and more, and it's getting more and more safer. A lot of companies have learned lessons from Fukushima and, 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 and Chernobyl and other instances that the demand for uranium relative to this supply is going to surprise to the upside. So it's another commodity for people to take a look at. And as I mentioned, oil and gas, you have this, what I think is globally, the supply side started to get cut, at least on the offshore side, after the collapse in oil prices in 2014. That was offset by a sharp increase in shale. But I don't think for a while, if at all, we'll get back to 2019 shale production levels. So now next year, 2021, you're looking at a, a potential sharp rise in the demand for, for, for oil. And the crimp in supply this year, I think, is going to catch up. And you're going to see $60, $70 oil at some point next year. An easy way. So the uranium thing is a whole nother discussion. That, that has just been maddening for me as well. But for the average investor to play oil and gas, just XLE and uranium, URM, like what's... Yeah, XLE, uh, you know, individual names, you look at just the big integrated, it's just companies that pay good dividends, the, 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 the service names like, like Schlumberger, uranium like Cameco, the large Canadian producer, as, as ways of playing it as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Peter, this has been really, really awesome. I really appreciate you spending all of the time before, before we go. Where can people find out more about you and what you do? Where do you, where do you want to send my listeners? So those interested on the wealth management side can go to bleakly.com and, and reach out to myself and, and, and the firm. From my writings, you can go to bookreport.com. It's B-O-C-K report.com and uh, get a trial of the things that I, I write on a daily basis. And if interested, can be a subscriber as well. Awesome. Peter, well, really appreciate it. And thanks so much. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate having me on. There you have it. Thank you for listening. Really appreciate your support. Show notes, transcript, links, and more can be found on our website at altassetallocation.com. If you'd be so kind, please share this with anyone you think might be interested or get some value from this conversation. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out. I'm always happy to hear them. Lastly, if you're on YouTube, please like the video or subscribe to the channel. If you're listening to the audio version of this, please subscribe to the podcast and or leave a review. This really helps more people find the podcast and I really appreciate it. Thanks again and hope you have a fantastic day. Happy investing.